you're that kind of person and you've got the capital and you're a great negotiator, you've got great people skills, you, you could probably be a successful flipper, but it, it's like a job, right? If you're not flipping, you're not making money. And that's why I prefer income property because you just make money every month. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 13231323. Thank you for joining us today as we are going to talk about opportunity zones and gentrification. Now, as most of you know, I have not been very impressed with the whole opportunity zone stuff. I think there is a lot of hype about this. There are a lot of promoters out there trying to navigate a very complex set of rules and a lot of hypesters who are, in my opinion, scamming people now. Granted, we're not going to know there was a scam for many years, possibly. But mark my words, I've been right about this stuff most of the time before. So we'll see, we'll see. But hey, there are some legitimate reasons to look at Opportunity Zones. They fit into a relatively small box. You can do 1031 exchanges, of course. You can do some of the other vehicles that I talked about at our recent Profits in Paradise event. If you'd like to know about these check with one of our investment counselors. If you have an investment counselor already, just reach out to them directly. If not, go to jasonhartman.com, fill out any web form at jasonhartman.com, and we will be in touch with you. Just make sure you leave your best contact phone number, and we'll be glad to tell you about some different programs to significantly reduce the impact of capital gains, but there are a few people that really do fit into the Opportunity Zone concept. And anyway, this guest today will talk about Opportunity Zones and also talk about the gentrification phenomenon that is happening. And, you know, is it the law of unintended consequences? This is what happens with a lot of these government programs. What they intend to happen, well, in practice, in, you know, there's a difference between the ivory tower theory and the real world practical application of this stuff. So again, none of us know. It's all just a speculation. It'll take years for this stuff to play out. It'll take years to see if people really get their tax breaks. It'll take years to see if the areas are improved for the people who live there or if those people will simply be pushed out. And it'll take years to find out if you invested with a scam artist. So all of these things, if you invested in an opportunity zone. And again, there are very few of you listening in these 189 countries where we have listeners that this will apply to. This is a pretty narrow opportunity, the opportunity zone. 
It's like a double positive opportunity, opportunity. <laughs> so we'll kind of examine some of that stuff today with our guest. Without further ado, let's get to him. Be sure you go to jasonhartman.com and check out properties and get in touch with an investment counselor. And I've got good news for you. We have quite a decent amount of new home inventory. Again, this is class A stuff. You pay a little bit of a premium for it, but I know many of you listening really uh, like the A properties. You like the A neighborhoods and you like the upper scale tenants without paying a lot of money, without going into one of these crazy cyclical markets or even hybrid markets where the risk is higher. So we've got low risk, high quality, new construction investment properties. And our investment counselors can tell you all about those through jasonhartman.com. Let's get to our guest. It's my pleasure to welcome Eric Willett to the show. He is vice president at RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. And today we want to talk about opportunity zones, specifically an article I saw uh, that he is the co-author of. I, I saw it a couple of months ago, talking about building opportunity, mapping gentrification and investment across the various opportunity zones. Eric, welcome. How are you? Thank you. Doing well. Thank you for having me. Good to have you. And you're coming to us from my former hometown, Los Angeles, California. That's correct. I guess let's start out with uh, the whole Opportunity Zone thing is pretty new. It's rather overcomplicated, if you ask me. <laughs> can see you nodding your head that you agree with yeah. that. It's kind of spotty. It's being implemented different ways in different states and cities. Just what are your thoughts on the macro level? And then let's drill down. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, certainly opportunity zones is a trendy topic in commercial real estate. It's one of the most significant changes to the way the investment landscape has shifted probably in the past 10 years. And because of that, there's been just a great deal of excitement from investors, from operators, developers, you know, all players within the real estate industry to working working within this framework and, and using opportunity zones. I think the program, as you mentioned, is pretty complicated, both in its aims and its implementation. It has elements of an economic policy to incentivize development writ large, but then also a very targeted policy to incentivize development in specific areas. And so I think we, at this stage in the cycle and with these policy aims, we see kind of countercurrents that are running against each other. And as it's at the really early stages of its rollout, um, we're still seeing how it will manifest throughout the market, both in terms of nationwide, but then also um, how it will impact different communities, different property types, so on and so forth. So mapping gentrification, I mean, are we already seeing some of that due to the Opportunity Zone initiative? Yeah, absolutely. So I think when the Opportunity Zone rollout was happening, so the rollout of regulations, which has been an extended process, of course, but, but rollout started happening um, halfway through 2018, through the end of 2018 into early 2019 in terms of the regulations, the identification of which zones were categorized as Opportunity Zones, and all of the specificity around this legislation that was fairly broad in its um, statements and then adding the specificity for the regulations, that all was happening at the end of 2018. And at RCLCO, we thought it was important to take stock of where these communities were once they were named and say, you know, a lot of these communities, this is not the first time there's been a thought of investment in them. And in fact, a lot of them have changed a great deal over the past 10 years. And an interesting wrinkle in the Opportunity Zone regulation is that the qualification of the opportunity zones and the ultimate designation of opportunity zones occurred on a state-by-state -state level, but based off of 2010 census data. 
using the 2010 census data to establish certain metrics such as income level and so on and so forth to right. decide which zones qualified. What you might yep. be saying when you say that is that here we are, you know, seven to now nine years later after that census, a lot of those areas have already gentrified. You know, I, it just brings to mind Oakland, California. I mean, mm-hmm. talk about a change, you know, driven by Silicon Valley. That's probably maybe one of the more dramatic examples of <laughs> of gentrification in the country, I'd guess. Yeah. But, you know, what, tell us about that. I mean, you know, it's a too, too long a lag time maybe for, for that census data, yeah. right? That's exactly right. And it's by virtue of the data being available, that's the best option really that they had with that level of granularity. But yeah, a lot has changed in those past 10 years. Of course, 2010 being in the midst of a deeper, you know, coming out right, right at the kind of the very tail end of the recession. Yeah. But then, uh, and then today, you know, after a long period of steady growth. So we did see a lot of communities that have changed pretty dramatically over that period that have gentrified, that the demographics have changed in a variety of different ways, or that have already received a great deal of investment that maybe weren't being invested in at the tail end of the last cycle through the recession. Right. So in other words, they didn't really necessarily need an opportunity zone. I think that's been the criticism we've heard a great deal of. And in some examples that, you know, come to mind, you, a lot of people have focused on several of the opportunity zones in New York State, um, mm-hmm. including several in the New York City area, areas such as Dumbo in Brooklyn, where mm-hmm. the median income is above 100,000. Right. Right? That doesn't fit the concept of an area that is either disadvantaged or an area that has not received real estate investment. Yeah, well, you know, the, the a lot of those yuppies were pushed out of the expensive Manhattan areas, so they went across the bridge. <laughs> it's know. a different type yeah. of demographic change. Yes, right. exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, in looking at this article, uh, you talk about some of the key findings here, and I'm sure you've touched on them, but anything else, you know, this this pie chart? Tell I think this is one of the more interesting components that we found. There's a lot of media attention and popular press energy around the fact that gentrification tends to be happening happening in high cost markets and um, markets like Dumbo or Los Angeles where I'm based and that that's where the real gentrification trends are. And when we were looking at the subset of opportunity zones, we found that actually a lot of the real gentrification on the metrics we were measuring, which were demographic change, change in investment, and change in economic um, realities, the most gentrified opportunity zones were actually concentrated in what we would consider rust belt cities or post-industrial cities. Detroit had the highest concentration of those tier of most gentrified opportunity zones. And I think that runs counter to a lot of the popular narrative and is really important in thinking about policy implications, that the character of neighborhoods and opportunity zones throughout these cities that we focus on less, perhaps, has been changing over the past 10 years and promises with the opportunity zone program to perhaps change more. To some extent, it's, you know, igniting more energy in in, in these areas. So how, how much change? I mean, you know, I guess the question might be, when will the cycle, I mean, we're at the beginning of the cycle of development. How long will this play out for that, you know, at what point in the future can we look back and say, hey, this is what really happened because of the Opportunity Zone legislation? Sure. So the way the program is structured, it, it incentivizes front loading the investment because some of the benefits wear off over time. And if you invest three years down the road, you're going to be able potentially, depending on how the legislation changes down the road, but some of the benefits wear off. So investing three years down the road is not as beneficial to the investor as investing in the next six months to nine months, 18 months, whatever it may be. So I think thinking out five years down the road, we'll have a pretty good look at what the impact is in these areas. 
our best bet based off of early markers of where investment activity is happening in opportunity zones because we can already see prices changing in zones and activity and institutional investment activity in these zones. Our best bet is that it will really exaggerate some of the trends we've already seen. So most of the investment will be in areas that already have some nugget of institutional activity. So not moving to the really far out rural areas, but concentrating in urban areas, for instance, particularly in coastal cities. So we see the hints of that in early capital market data, but we don't know you know, how that will move going down the road and, and where that will really end up. Yeah. And by the way, I just want to say for the listeners, of course, this is mostly most people will be listening to the audio, but we are putting this on the YouTube channel so you can see some of the visuals that we're talking about here. So so that's good. And uh, unintended consequences, or maybe intended, if you want to be conspiratorial about it. Uh, but, you know, every program, every government program especially has all these unintended consequences, whether it be cash for clunkers or a zillion programs before that and after that. What are some of the unintended consequences that are happening in the opportunity zones? I mean, certainly it's going to make areas nicer, but gentrification has its own cost to the people that have been living in these areas for a long time at a very low cost. Talk to us about that and how how the program's working. Yeah, I think that's the really tricky component of this. And I think as we looked at the gentrification index, it was important for us to remark on gentrification as a neutral observer of an activity that's happening, because there it certainly is a organic process that happens in communities nationwide that changes demographics for positive for some, negative for others, and it changes rents positive for some, negative for others. And so there are definitely winners and losers in all of these activities. And I think thinking about the policy, we see some of the same dynamics at play. This in certain communities, we expect this to be in effect throwing gasoline on the fire, Mm -hmm. right? Really igniting development in an area that maybe wasn't the most active development market, but already had some hints of the gentrification of perhaps um, more white, wealthy professionals moving in and displacing communities of color, low-income communities like that. We see that as a potential trend, and we also see more of the intended effect of driving some investment to areas that just have not had access to capital, have not had real estate activity in a way that benefits the community. And so certainly from afar, looking back, we hope that most of the activity is community oriented, right? And that it is investment activity that benefits the residents and benefits the broader community as well. I think, you know, in terms of unintended consequences, the risk is that that's not the case. And certainly the commercial real estate industry is not always geared towards addressing those concerns. And so it's that important tension between um, the public sector and the private sector investment that will, in certain cases, make that happen. And in certain cases will result with that not happening. When developers come in and and try to do projects in opportunity zone designated areas, I would assume the skids are pretty greased, if you will, right? They're not getting a lot of resistance from planning departments and, and things like that, I, I would I would think, but uh, maybe you can yeah. speak to that. I think that's true. It certainly varies by area, but a lot of these areas are communities or neighborhoods where the the municipality is hoping that more investment goes and has worked with the state government to designate it as an opportunity zone as a way of funneling development towards that area. So I think, you know, with a broad brush, I I think that's true and that the public sector is supportive of um, investment in in these areas, but certainly there are examples where that's not the case. Mm -hmm. So what's going on with the Sunbelt cities? Uh, Your article talks about how many of, of the least gentrified opportunity zones are in those areas. 
So the, the Sunbelt studies are really unique, both in terms of their demographics and the way that um, real estate investment activity has been happening there. The real key with the Sunbelt, I think, that we've seen in our analysis is that because of their suburban bent, they're much more suburban than they are urban, particularly the, the opportunity zones that are designated. So both the character of the city is generally more suburban, but also where the opportunity zones are located are more suburban. Because of that bias or kind of that over-indexing on suburban, the gentrification has been less extreme in the past decade. So across the board, gentrification has been more pronounced in urban areas, in urban opportunity zones, and, and we know from other research in urban areas generally. And so because of the suburban focus of Sunbelt cities, there's been less of a gentrification push. And that, of course, reflects the different demographics, the different pricing structure of those markets, and then also just the different preferences of consumers there. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sure you'll be able to answer this question, uh, so uh, forgive me if if it's not your area. But, you know, the gentrification index itself is a pretty interesting thing. I mean, what is that looking at? Is it looking at the trend, the difference, and over what time period? I mean, that's got to be a pretty complex index to create and, yeah, and report it- on. You know, it's sort of easy when you look at this uh this one uh, table you have, you've got the gentrification index, demographic index, income index, investment index. I would think of all of those income and demographics would be the easiest, but gentrification and investment, because they're really dynamic, more so than the other two, I'm thinking, would be yeah, that- pretty hard to calculate. That's correct. And, and gentrification is this kind of many-headed beasts. And yeah. this is, so there are lots of ways to look at it. What we focused on are those three categories that you mentioned, right? Demographics, income, and investment. And for each of them, our analysis of gentrification was focused on the change. So it had to have two elements. First, it had to start out. So for income, it had to start out low income and then have significant change in the intervening period. And we were looking at the period between 2010 and 2017. So those seven years for investment, similar concept where the area was disinvested in 2010. So had less than the average investment for an area and within an, within a, an urban metropolitan area. And then over that seven year period had an increased amount of investment more so than its peers and demographic change was more focused on the change. So just an area that has had significant demographic change. And so our analysis looked at all three of those thinking that they offered slightly different perspectives on an area and then melded them together. And as you can see online, we, we have an interactive dashboard that allows you to play with the, the different indices to see mm-hmm. where the, each lever impacts the overall index and, and where perhaps income is more of a factor than investment, for instance. Yeah, fascinating. So can you speak, though, specifically at all to the gentrification index? I mean, like you said, it's a multi-headed beast, right? How do you, yep. what do they just look at, the race of people moving in and out and over what time period? I mean, how the heck do you come up with an index like that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, so you know, we, we, before doing this, looked at the academic literature to see how a variety of um, academics were looking at it, um, looked at other practitioners to see. Our gentrification index is, in fact, the combination of these three indices below, right? The kind of the demographics and income and investment. So it rolls it all up together, saying that all three of these are different markers of gentrification. And so collectively, they tell a story of of gentrification as a whole. It's a really difficult thing to measure. I think one of the important components is that this index, as with many indices, is in fact relative, right? Right. So it's only as valuable as the comparison. Good point. Compared to what is always the question. Yeah. Yep. 
those are you know the limitations of the data that we have and there's no real one definition of what gentrification looks like but mm-hmm. to a certain extent everyone agrees there are components of all three of these factors right, right. that when the demographic group that that lives in an area is shifting that tends to be a result typically from people of color to a more white demographic that right. tends to be gentrifying rising oh. incomes and then rising investment tend to be kind of the the markers of what gentrification usually looks like yeah yeah fair enough you know it'll be interesting to see what happens politically uh, in the coming years because all the gerrymandering will begin of both sides trying to get the right voters in their in their map sure. you know and, and and that kind of stuff so uh, yeah. fa- fascinating and the, the opportunity zones is is somewhat unique in that it, it has had bipartisan support mm-hmm. certainly it was part of the tax bill that was passed and right. you know a landmark accomplishment of, of president trump but i think looking forward the at least observers in the industry and and us as well see the bipartisan support as of it as kind of ensuring its continued implementation, regardless of political changes at the federal level. But it's it's a really important thing to watch. And as we know, federal policies can change pretty rapidly. Yeah, and sure. so that can dramatically impact the, way, the nature of real estate investment and the context for it. The other thing that's pretty hard to do uh, with an index, especially like the gentrification index, is these, some of these neighborhoods, it's just literally a couple of blocks that makes a huge difference. And so how do you stake the geography? You know, that that's just really, it's hard to tease out what's really happening, even with all of this data, you know? Yeah. And data is, again, only as good as the data you have, of course. The benefit of the Opportunity Zones is that the program itself is structured around census tracts. And so they've identified that that's kind of their building block for the Opportunity Zone program and and opportunity zone legislation and then regulations. And as a result, we were able to pretty closely match that with the Census Bureau data, both from their decennial census that was conducted in 2010, and then more recent data they've collected through less frequent surveys, including the American Community Survey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fantastic. Well, hey, if there's anything else you want to tell us about opportunity zones, uh, feel free. I do want to ask you just for a moment before you go about multifamily and you guys do a lot in that space, and we want to hear about uh, your your take on the market, both present and, and future. But anything else about the Opportunity Zone topic? No, I think it, it is an important one to watch, and I think we're, we're at this exciting early stage of it. Exciting and, and potentially concerning, right? We don't know what, what the path forward will look like, and so it'll be really important as the program matures and as investment is actually deployed into these areas to measure the impacts, both in terms of the real estate financial economic impact, but then also the community impact and and the ability of this program to improve outcomes. Good stuff. Okay, so the multifamily market, there's many aspects, of course, the valuation of properties, cap rates, and then, you know, what what are the rents doing? uh, What are the vacancies like? And the construction has just been on a tear coming out of the Great Recession. Now, for a while, it felt like we were getting a little oversupplied. I don't know if that's still true. What are your thoughts? Uh, You know, when when every American city, you know, has the city bird is the crane, (laughs) the construction crane. Uh, (laughs) And uh, and that's still 
pretty true, I think. But yeah, your thoughts it, it's that? certainly been a unique 10 years, right? And, and for multifamily in particular, that the last 10 years have been really for a, a wide range of factors, including demographic, but also this unique supply component has been on a tear, as you said, just really a dynamic industry that has been throwing up apartment buildings left and right. And I, one of the interesting things that we've been monitoring as a firm and as we work with clients in the multifamily space is this idea that what were previously high barrier to entry markets or markets that were considered high barrier to entry, now we're like, I don't know. Like, it's really interesting. Maybe the barriers aren't so high. Um, and so coastal markets like Los Angeles, where I'm sitting, there has been, in fact, a lot of supply delivery areas like New York, where, yes, they're traditionally high barrier to entry. It is harder to build, but there there's been a lot of supply delivery that maybe wasn't anticipated going back 10 plus years. Where we're at today, I think we see... Hey, hey wait, uh, before, before yeah, you leave course. that topic, you're talking about Los Angeles. You're saying that the barrier to entry is hard because the land is constricted. There's a lot of bureaucracy. It's hard to build. That's right. So saying. I think, well, I think that was kind of the governing theory going into the recession and in the immediate years out of the recession. But the last few years have led to some questions as to whether that's actually true, mm-hmm. because certainly it's, it's certainly it's higher barriers to entry than Tampa, Florida, for instance, or Atlanta. But we have seen significant volumes of supply delivery in nearly every market nationwide, including those with regulatory burdens and high land price, land constraints. And so across the board, I think we've started to reconsider what high barrier to entry really means because there has been such a supply, a a movement of supply. Yeah, interesting. Well, in L.A., you know, you've got a, a situation where everything is virtually an infill project. Right. Yes. Um, So you don't need to do an environmental impact study on are you going to destroy the habitat of a bug? Okay. (laughs) Because something's already there, right? You're just building something better in its place. So, you know, maybe that's kind of one of the factors. And, and certainly, I mean, there's a lot of economic problems in California, certainly other places as well. Mm -hmm. They want the money. They want the tax base. Sure. So at the end of the day, you know, it's the old saying, follow the money. Everybody has to go with their pocketbook, right? Including city planners. (laughs) Yeah, well, and there is a great deal of political pressure to build more housing. And there's an obvious, in many of the coastal markets, there's an obvious housing shortage. And so the combination of factors, in addition to significant capital flows, has helped allow for for more supply. Now, is it, is it enough? You know, I know Los Angeles, obviously, very well living here and, and working here. And, and is it enough supply to satisfy the demand? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But it's probably also more supply than that we would have anticipated a while back. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Okay, sorry, I interrupted. What were you going to say, if you remember? <laughs> right? Well, so looking forward, I think there, there are kind of two countervailing trends, right? And that the first is where I think a lot of flashing yellow signals that were approaching the peak of a, of a market cycle, mm-hmm. right? And, and who knows, what that means and how severe it will be and when exactly it will end. But but looking across the market, it's pretty clear that, that we've had a good run and that there are some weaknesses in the economy that maybe would ask for some level of caution in the real estate investment. On the flip side, though, particularly about multifamily, is the demand trends are really strong. And looking out five, 10 years, we think there's a lot of opportunity left and, and some runway left in the, in the multifamily market that hasn't been met. And so we think there's, in particular, looking across the different commercial real estate asset classes, multifamily is a, a strong one with a lot of really strong demand potential. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the demographics coming at the rental market are still 
incredibly strong and they have been strong for a long time. I used to say the next 10 years are great, but that was almost 10 years ago and and they're, they're still phenomenal. But when you dice that up a little bit and I I know we got to wrap it up, but you know, what segment it's, it's like everything being built is a class, you know, maybe B, but there's just nothing that's the no bread and butter housing is being built in the single family market in the, the multifamily market, I mean, it's just all expensive. Yeah. And the reality is that the factor pricing, so the, the construction costs, both the labor and, and the actual materials costs are such that it makes it really difficult to justify building lower cost housing at this right. point. And so I think that that's, that is true nationwide, true across all of the markets and is a real challenge. And so there are a lot of really smart real estate developers, really smart groups that are trying to crack the code, right? How do you deliver a product that is lower cost, but still a solid product Mm -hmm. um, and deliver it at scale? And I, you know, I think we'll over the next five years, see some real activity in that space. And certainly the capital markets have realized that there's a huge opportunity there in both the, what we would consider workforce housing. So more affordable, but not subsidized. And then also in the subsidized space. Right. But are there any certain tricks that they're going to be using to do that? I mean, you know, you see this stuff on social media, 3D printed houses, they're $10,000. Sure. As soon as I see them in real life, I'll believe you. But so far, you know, it's just like a digital rendering (laughs) that I'm seeing on my Facebook feed. Yeah, (laughs) Or or maybe it's one, but it's just not that way. And then you you hear about these $20,000 houses you can buy on Amazon. Well, we checked that out. And that is completely misleading. You know, they don't include all the engineering studies. Of course, they don't include the land. They're just little kits that are like frames. It's a joke. It's yeah. just There is some movement, uh, modular construction. You know, there are some large groups that are pursuing that in earnest um, with really serious investment behind them. And I think we actually in, in Southern California and, and throughout California have seen a few instances of modular buildings being built up, being constructed that, that look good. Right. They look like um, really great apartment buildings and yeah. they function well and they can be maintained well. And so there's some energy there is the delta between that and a traditional build, you know, mm-hmm. up from the ground. Yeah. Is that enough to justify it? Is it enough to really move the industry in that direction? I don't think we know yet, but I guess that's the glimmer of hope there that that, that yeah. maybe that as that industry matures, that there will be an opportunity in that space. And what's funny about that is our society has this odd and I believe misplaced discrimination against modular housing. It is fantastic. But as soon as you say that, people go, oh, it's basically a mobile home. And, you know, homes should not be built on site. They should be built in factories and assembled on site. It's just logical. The construction process is still pretty old-fashioned, you know, in in the aggregate. The idea that framers will come and, you know, bricklayers come, (laughs) that's just, that can be much better done in a factory, if you ask me. Yeah, there there are a great number of studies out there showing how um, the productivity change in real estate construction is among the lowest of any industry over the last 100 years. And so elements of of this sort of innovation, uh, modular construction, factory built, paneling, um, so on and so forth, is really, it's definitely the future. We don't know when it will mature and get there, but but it's definitely where it's headed. I I say it's long overdue, and we need to uh, put our old prejudices against that aside because some of these uh, builders do a great job with that kind of stuff. So uh, For sure. we need to see more of it. It'll, it'll create more affordable housing. Okay. Hey, give out your website and uh, yep. any closing comment. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. If, if you want to learn more about Opportunity Zones and the work that RCL does, please check us out online. Um, our website's rclco.com. You can find our Opportunity Zone Index under our advisory resources, um, in addition to a great deal of information about commercial real estate investing and, and the services we provide. Good stuff. Eric, thanks for joining us. Right. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, hartmanmedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.